Welcome to Help from Future Self. Hey, what's up, Archons? And welcome to another episode of Help from Future Self. It's the conversational Keyforge podcast by and for Keyforge friends. I am your Keyforge pal, Scuzzy Gruen, also known as Alex. And I'm joined this week, as always, by the maestro, the man who makes it happen, my Keyforge coach, my Keyforge compadre. It's Boulevard Paper Fight. What's happening, Blake? Yeah, what's going on, man? Not too much. Super excited for today's episode because when you pitched it, it instantly got my mind working. Uh, we, you know, we were talking about uh, topics that we wanted to do on the podcast coming up, and you said I want to do an episode about deck familiarity, and and I think what you meant by that, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Blake, was we love the idea of discovery in KeyForge, but one perhaps underrepresented aspect of discovery is not just discovering like the the joy of opening up a brand new deck, but of playing a deck and then having it reveal itself to you so that you can internalize the way it plays and then discover the maximum way to play it in order to get wins and uh, discover all of its various tricks, its responses to other decks, et cetera, et cetera. Is that kind of what you had in mind? 100%, yeah. For me, it's been lately, I've been doing on my YouTube this idea of doing like a deck deep dive and it's mm-hmm. finding a deck that on first blush has something that's really interesting and then trying to really see if that comes to light. And sometimes it doesn't and you have to find other aspects that make it shine because doing this, I'm starting to recognize that every Keyforge deck, I'm sure there are some exceptions, but mo- let's just rephrase that to most Keyforge decks have something really special and spectacular that can really make that deck hum and win. And when you start figuring that out, that's when the deck really starts to click. You start understanding the way you want the cards to come, the way you want the houses to come. And sometimes the order you need certain cards to show up in order to really have everything go off and uh, have that maximum potency. Yeah, absolutely. And it's certainly a thing that I think is is really prevalent now that we're into the age of uh, of mass mutation fully and discovering not only those new cards, but also the way that enhancements impact the way that we approach the game um, and seeing those interactions not only with other mass mutation decks, but starting to see how they impact play with other styles of deck. I've been seeing more and more and more cross-set play now that I think some of the no- mass mutation novelty has worn off, and it's been mm-hmm. really instructive to me me to see how mass mutation plays against uh, a bunch of other sets and sometimes it's been very surprising and uh really the familiarity has been deepening with a lot of the mass mutation decks i've been playing so i'm keen to talk about this yeah 100 percent. me too so i guess starting things off uh one of the first thoughts that i really had uh and the way that you kind of pitched this it, it, it's something that kind of got my mind really working was the idea of knowing how to play cards and what cards to play and how to craft your hands to get the most efficacious plays. But I think that also factors into things that are like very simple, straightforward Keyforge concepts as well. Uh, I like the idea of once you get to know a deck a little bit, you can really start to think about what's a good opening hand with a deck. Do I throw this back? Am I holding a bunch of cards that are more useful to me later in the game that I don't want to have my first hand? Am I holding a key piece that I do not want to throw back because it's important to the strategy for this deck to win? Yeah, I'm with you on that one. I actually even will go even further. We'll say a house that I don't want early. Mm -hmm. Like if there's aspects like once they're gone, 
sometimes I, that makes things a little bit more tricky for what I want. I'll actually maybe be like, you know what, early game, I don't mind getting this house out that I find is less advantageous near the end game. So let's start getting that out early so that I know I'm drawing into the other two houses later on as the game progresses, because that's what's going to help me really get across the goal line and uh, get that third key. Yeah, yeah, I feel very much the same way. And one of the other fun things about deck familiarity is that when you know your deck, unless you're playing against somebody you've played with the same deck a million times, and that happens, like there are certain decks that you play that I know okay. There's certain decks that Rick plays that I know quite well from having played multiple games against Rick using with him using that deck. Because you know your deck and your opponent does, it gives you an advantage. So say, for example, if I'm using a deck that I have, a mass mutation deck that I play all the time, as a matter of fact, Soria the Tastelessly Armored, oftentimes um, the discards in that deck are not the most important thing about it. And so if I open up with a hand that has a bunch of discards, I might actually throw them out onto the table. And my opponent, not knowing that it's not worth wasting his removal and other resources on them, might start, you know, putting out his removal cards, might start fighting his creatures into them, might start doing all kinds of other stuff to deal with them, when in fact, they're not even important to my my overall gameplay plan as the game progresses. Yeah, I mean... I'm with you on that. There's there's even, I think, from the other side of the table, just a lesson to be kind of take note of here that I don't know if everyone does. I'm sure there are people who do this. But when you're not just looking at the Archon card for like the hot cards that you need to watch out for, but sometimes being very aware of the creature distribution is very crucial because if you know a house only has four creatures and they play two of those creatures... If you're worried about them using that as a means of getting into check potentially, like a reap or something like that, you know that's probably less likely because they're not going to use that to get on board and things of that nature. Like they're going to be playing more cards that have a utility to support maybe other houses. So keep that in mind if you're worried about like a big reap and you have creatures that are going to be maybe trading. It may not be worthwhile to trade with that particular house. If the amount of creatures that they're going to be using to reap in the end are not going to be advantageous there, it's going to be in one of the other two houses. And you may want to save those fights for something later on. That's, of course, assuming that these aren't like reap threat creatures that could be on the board. Mm-hmm. Back in the Coda days, we used to see a lot more must-answer creatures on the board. I mean, I think they definitely exist in Mass Mutation, but oftentimes it's the threat of what they could do that is the scariest. Like, if we look back to the OG set, I think, like, Witch of the Eye is a must-answer card. You have to do something about a hunting witch, a Witch of the Eye, basically all the witches. And there's a couple of others as well, certain Shadows cards. Um, but, uh, you know, as far as creatures goes, those were very high priority. But what's interesting is that oftentimes when you know your deck really well, maybe you have one of those high priority removal cards that people know that they have to get rid of, but it's not even that important to your overall game plan. For example, I have a deck that I do very well with from the older sets that uses Witch of the Eye as bait, essentially. I know that she is in no way needed for me to win with that deck. 
I mean, obviously, if she gets left unchecked, I can do shenanigans with her. But oftentimes, I will hold her and save her until such a time as that when I put her down, suddenly my opponent is bending over backwards trying to figure out ways to take her off the board, which, of course, ends up with them wasting a bunch of resources on something that wasn't even important to me in the first place. And I only know that because I played that deck a million times and started noting how did this card factor into the way that I was playing and noticed it really didn't at all. It wasn't important to my victories. Mm, yeah, I like that. Uh, I don't have decks that I've really thought of that way, but I know exactly what you're saying. Like you just realize that this can go out there, create that uh, that threat level midnight, if we're going to make an office reference here. <laughs> and, and then people are going to have to suddenly respond to that because they know almost it's you know what it's like it's almost like a trauma response because you've been burned by it so much mm -hmm. that you feel the need to to respond to it early and quickly before it gets away from you yeah you're absolutely correct that's one of the things about deck familiarity that i think really shines to me is knowing what the important pieces of your deck are when it comes to what the strategy is and what the strategy is ultimately uh, you know what is the path to victory what are the paths of play that are going to take me to three keys? And once you understand that from playing a deck multiple times and hopefully winning with it a bunch of times, but also, importantly, losing with it a bunch of times, it becomes clear, okay, um, this is a high draw deck. So more than anything else, what I need to have happening is I need to get uh, my draw stuff set up so that I can just start turning through my deck and getting as many of my, my cards into hand as possible. Because if I start stalling out too fast... That's going to be a problem for me. Um, you know, same thing with, say, uh, this is a deck that relies on absolutely, you know, maintaining total board control. So I need to engineer things so that I always have a board and my opponent never has or can only maintain a very small board in order for things to work. Those are the kinds of discoveries that only come from playing a deck a bunch of times and noticing how it does the special thing, as you put it. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. And, and I think that also falls into the category of understanding like you have a dominant house in your deck. And when you can get that on board strong, you are able to just basically control. And I feel like Sanctum and Saurians and even Star Alliance, especially in Worlds Collide, fall into this category is once you establish a strong board with them, you're able to almost not have to call any other house because you have five or six creatures and you can just go through and either reap or fight like it's either you're going to control the board because you have so many creatures that you're going to get to reap for at least three fight with two and if they have like a splash damage before fight trigger or fight trigger that does something along those lines it just creates this level where once you get that out if they don't have a board wipe like let's be honest that's what it's going to take you are going to just make it so that their creatures you spend a turn playing them and then they're gone the next turn so it's almost like a wasted turn in a way and i've noticed this can happen where if you have a house that falls under that you need to recognize that sometimes getting like two creatures at a time is really bad and just playing it out because you actually need to get three or four out so that they can't just fight into them and take care of them before you've established that really oppressive board so you may want to actually like hold off on playing some of those creatures right away and maybe make a less efficient play. Like, so you have three, let's say it's Sanctum, for example. You have three Sanctum cards in hand, two creatures, one action. And then it turns out you have two of one house and one of another. Uh, so you just play your two other house cards, and then that's hopefully going to get some more Sanctum so you can actually start establishing that game plan that's really going to hum and be oppressive. 
Yeah, I, I love that you're bringing up that that classic concept of a dominant house because this sort of factors into one of the things that I think is really interesting, which is one of the earliest pieces of Keyforge advice that I absorbed from the now departed but still incredibly relevant and important Bouncing Death Quark podcast was the idea of uh, if you're not sure what to do, play board plus hand. You know, look mm-hmm. at what you have on the board, look at what you have in hand, add up the cards, and then whatever you can get the most value out of, play it that way. But once you get familiar with the deck, that advice oftentimes falls by the wayside. I 100% agree. It's, so, it's the best advice for like a new deck, or if you're a new player to the game and you're not sure, is, is see as much as possible. Because when you're seeing as much as possible, you're going to start to understand patterns and start to notice patterns. And that could be mm-hmm. patterns of, I keep doing this and I'm not winning. And when that happens, you need to sometimes check yourself that maybe that concept is not the right concept. But if you start noticing other patterns like, oh, these cards together are really strong, I want to try and make that happen more. And maybe I'll play less efficient to allow that to come together. Additionally, it also, I think, really opens up a play space, which is the psychological play space. Um, oftentimes, I find that um, the some of the decks that have been most successful ones are ones where I try to create a scenario that lures my opponent into doing something which is ultimately advantageous for me. So, for example, if I'm playing a Quixelstone deck that uh, has other artifacts in it and my opponent has some artifact control, I'm probably going to hold back on my Quixelstone and put out some other artifacts and see if I can get some value out of them in the hopes that my opponent wastes their artifact control on those cards so then I can play the actual more important card, in the case of a Quixelstone deck, obviously, the Quixelstone, in order to make that happen. Same thing with removal and going back to what we were saying about Witch of the Eye. Oftentimes you can hold back, you know, once you understand the actual important aspects of a deck, what things are and sort of play a little more sort of like a it's laid like chicken, back. you know, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You're playing chicken. Who's going to, who's going to move first and, and drop it. Like who, what's more important is, is this one artifact? Can you risk allowing it to stay on the board? Are you going to pop it? But if so, does that mean it allows the quixel to come out now? Or are you going to pop the quixel first because you can't wait and things are like moving out of your favorites. Mm-hmm. It's a really interesting, you're right. It's a psychological game. Yeah, it's, it's it's also like super intricate because the question starts to become how well did my opponent look at my Archon card at the beginning of the game? How well do they understand the game to know what the actual threat cards are? Am I playing against somebody who seems like an experienced player, somebody who knows their deck super well? Are we playing against somebody who seems like they are playing in an aggressive way, which looks like they're just going for broke and not thinking about two turns in ahead of time? And is there a way that because I know what's coming in my deck, I can take advantage of that, which is another thing that deck familiarity imparts you. It starts to get that feeling of, you know, what is the tempo of this deck? Is this a deck where I don't play a lot of cards for the first half of the game? I'm just setting myself up for those big turns later on. I'm seeing this a ton right now, Blake, with auto encoder decks. I played mm-hmm. a bunch of games over the past couple of days where people who I was playing against who had auto encoder out would discard like entire hands worth of cards. Like they'd mm-hmm. throw out four or five cards in a single turn. And I was like, man, you're just wasting a turn. What are you doing? And then they would absolutely murder me. And the reason that they would murder me is because they knew by throwing away five cards, they were going to draw five cards and then have another five cards in their archive and likely would have access to every good thing that was still in their deck, you know, mid game. It was it was a remarkable strategy to watch played out. Must be because of the episode we did. 
Yeah, yeah. People are really listening in. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm with you. It's uh it's super interesting, like to have that that level of knowledge. Like I have a deck that uh this is what actually gave me this idea, is this one deck. And I was playing with it and I was just losing. And I couldn't figure out why, because the deck was rated highly. And not only that, but when I looked at it, I was like, yeah, this looks good. But I kept losing. And I couldn't figure it out. And then I finally, like when I hit my 10 game mark, I started to really understand what it wanted to do. And it had this weird thing where I needed to get this one house out either early. So if my opponent gets rid of it, it's in my discard or hold off and play it late. I did not want to play it mid game because I wanted all of it together. And then it had some cards of recursion so that if it either got into the discard early, I could put it back into my deck for late game and then get a whole cluster near the end. Or I would have it all at the end together, and then I could just put this oppressive board out like I was talking about, that unless you had a board wipe right then and there, it was going to be very tricky to deal with. Plus, it has wards, so it makes it even more of a a sticky situation. And then once I understood that that house coming out and making sure you got it out at the end, so you just had that dominance, made all the difference to the victory versus a loss. Yeah, I mean, that's a great I think, anecdote to illustrate what we're talking about. Because I think that because Keyforge is so discovery-focused, oftentimes, you know, just like I said off the top of the show, that discovery that comes with just patient playing of a deck, even a deck that, you know, seems like it's a losing deck, even though it's good on paper, oftentimes that that discovery that comes from multiple plays is where its true strengths present themselves. Like you and I, I think, also have had the thing where a deck seems amazing on paper and then it just turns out through multiple plays that it doesn't. It has some glaring weaknesses. Um, it doesn't move fast enough. It doesn't have some key element, so it gets steamrolled by a large proportion of other decks, other things like that. Um, whereas we've also had the experience of the deck that looks totally not that major on paper. And then when you actually play it, it create what, you know, that, that just like what you were saying after, you know, 10 or so games, suddenly something reveals itself to you that, you know, you only got from those 10 plays that, that joy of discovery is delayed from the opening of the deck and looking at it for the first time and becomes sort of this delayed gratification thing. And that's kind of a, a more subtle pleasure of Keyforge that requires a little bit of work to get at. And that's, I think, goes into the sequence thing, because sequence is something that when you're playing, especially with that strategy of just seeing how the deck cycles, so you're trying to just play as much as you can and utilize like the, the bouncing death quark board plus hand, that's where you can miss the sequencing, because the difference you did was you chose to play the most efficient play of three cards, because you only have two and one of the other, and guess what? That meant that you now played three cards but you needed this fourth card that came into your hand next. And if you had waited one more turn mm. and got that with the other four, it would have actually created a better sequence of play that makes things a lot stronger. And sometimes you don't realize that until you see it happen. And that's where the reps come in because that's when you start seeing more things coming together in pairs or in triples or even quads sometimes that you're going to start to see these things start interacting together in a way that you had not previously thought of now it's revealing itself to you and that's yes. where the time and play comes in and i think that that's sort of like one of the the key aspects because oftentimes i think the way that we think about decks when we start assessing them is okay um this card goes with this card and this card would be a cool combo with this card and i need to watch out for you know 
this because this card would be an answer for that. But oftentimes it's not even about these very specific combos. It's just like you were saying, like it can be in a house-based thing, but it can also just be the tempo of the deck and the way that that works. Like if you're mm-hmm. playing, once again, one of these high draw decks that we're seeing a ton of now in Mass Mutation because of enhancements that allow card draw, it suddenly becomes the, okay, I haven't seen a bunch of my draw pips yet, so I know that there's got to be some coming up. And when that happens, I'm going to end up with a ton of cards so I'm going to speed up very quickly within one or two turns. Am I set up for that? Am I in a position where I'm going to draw into a bunch of the things that I need? Am I in danger of overdrawing and having an overfilled hand that I can't use up immediately? Those are the kinds of things that we're now having to think about, and the only way to really get the feeling for how the deck plays is just, once again, that repeated play, getting that familiarity. And along that line of thinking, I think that the best representation of this idea actually was the Coda Untamed era, Mm -hmm. when you had things like hunting witches with creatures or full moons with a hunting witch, and then you bring in things like Choda or a key charge, where that one turn burst and getting a key right away, you sometimes actually had to play really inefficiently because you got certain pieces like I'm thinking more of the hunting witch side rather than the key charge side. Mm-hmm. But if you know that getting that key off is like puts you in a really strong advantage, sometimes you need to play a little bit inefficiently for a couple turns to really craft those pieces to come together. And it just creates that ability, like if you're patient, that it works out in your favor. But there's another side to this that I've been paying attention to more lately. And that's where I'm spending a lot more time lately, really looking at the composition of my discard and what I've played and knowing like okay this is the the odds like i don't really do it strictly on it like i'm not a really big numbers guy in terms of like calculating percentages but i do more like just counts of okay i've played this many of this house so i know that there's way more of this house has been played which leaves this house and this house together but i want this house to come next so what i'm going to do is play this house which leads way more of this last house, which means I should in the next turn or two have almost a full hand of this one house I want to play and can have a really big turn. And I find being very aware of what you've played and the distribution of houses is very important. And it's always been an important thing. But when you're playing on TCO, it's actually one of the great benefits of it is it's very easy to have a look and see what's there. And when you're doing it, your opponent doesn't know you're doing it. So you have like that ability that they can't figure out if you're trying to like plan for something or anything. They just know that you're looking, they, they have no idea actually that you're looking to see the composition of what's been played and what could be left. And I really like that about Keyforges looking at the odds of what you could possibly draw and what are you likely to cycle into. And of course you have the advantage in TCO, which is definitely taking a shortcut of just clicking on your deck and then seeing like the the distribution of what's left because that's just a part of what it is. I mean, that, that knowledge is there whether you choose to take the shortcut or if you just count the other cards, you know, it's, it's one way or the other. You're still getting that information. It's just really easy to do with the draw pile. Yeah, one of the the things that I think really bugs me about TCO is that sometimes it can engender a couple of bad habits, and one of them is, of course, looking at your opponent's Archon card well past the point where you should be able to look at your opponent's Archon card. Um, But ultimately, when it comes to your own deck, it can help train you to think about things in certain ways. And Mm -hmm. after, you know, I think you and I had a conversation about this once, and, um, you know, when we were uh, back when we were playing a lot more like sort of big tournaments locally, I got very in the habit of counting my discard and looking at what was on the table and looking at what was in my hand. And that not only gives you an idea of 
you know, like you said, what is the likelihood of my upcoming hand composition, but is also the how many turns until I cycle my deck, which is a calculation that's, you know, by no means an exact science, but is an incredibly important one if you're playing in a high stakes game. If you know that you've already played some of your heat and you're trying to figure out whether it's likely you're going to see it again, and that can shape the way that you play. Sometimes also the reverse where you don't want to cycle your deck because there's mm. things maybe that you want to put back in and you can redraw it, uh, especially now with Rad Penny being mm. a thing. You sometimes want to be able to know like, okay, I'm going to put my Rad Penny in the bottom. How can I make it so that I don't actually draw my whole deck and plan for the Shadows turn where then I can actually kill my Rad Penny again, put it back and draw it again? Like there's sometimes that aspect too. I, I found that Rad Penny has really created this uh this thought process for me it might be because i have a triple rad penny deck but <laughs> it it makes me think about this a little bit more i'm like okay how many times can i actually get this back and not draw so i'm actually just drawing repetitively this steel and how can i shut up set up my uh, shadows so that i'm going to get really maximum benefit from this happening yeah i mean rad penny is 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 a wonderful card in that anything that returns to either your archive or your deck is just you know, tremendous value over the course of a game. You know, a Rad Penny... Hyde and Valum does it too. Yeah, exactly. Um, But like Rad Penny is the one where I feel like it's almost like the OG Shadows kind of power where because Steel is such a powerful mechanism, you know, the idea of, all right, I used a uh, Rad Penny three times, let's say, uh, over the course of a game, you swung the game by six amber, an entire key worth of amber and knowing how to get it back into the deck is is really an important one and knowing the ways in which that you have it, can have it and whether or not you're likely to draw it next and whether or not you can get it off the table again if you have a seeker needle or something like that. Always important to know and always interesting to consider. It's the kind of things that only become apparent the more you play a deck, the more the way that you feel that it pulls, um, the more that you have an understanding of the speed and the general way, for lack of a better term, just the way the deck plays. How does it want to play? When it wins, is it because it went fast or because it went slow? Because it went all balls out or because it played conservatively and held stuff back? And sometimes decks, you know, you can shift gears even between those things depending on what your opponent does. And you only know to do that not based on the composition of the deck, but in knowing the way the deck has played. 100%. 100%. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on that one. And kind of sort of on topic, off topic, is I've noticed, well, I don't think notice is the right word, but I've been thinking about lately uh, the original decks you open when you start a new set, because I find that the decks you first play are very much misrepresented from what they are, because you don't understand the set yet. And sometimes you just move on because you're cracking decks as you go. And then you get to a point where I think you need to kind of go back to those original five, ten decks that you opened and maybe take a second look at them. Because I think there might be some really interesting things that you never saw because you didn't have the experience both of seeing Mass Mutations played or whatever the new set happens to be. And now that you have more experience, you may notice like, holy crap, this actually has a whole bunch of things that I now know are super potent and this has it and I never realized it. Or it has like the one thing that you may not have realized that is really cool. And you can go back and actually play that deck with a greater understanding of how it plays in general because you have a greater understanding of the set from when you first had those few games with it. 
Yeah, I think that like to bring it up again, um, one of our favorite topics, autoencoder is almost like the case in point here of now that I understand how autoencoder works, I'm going back and revisiting some of my earliest mass mutation decks and going, all right, which one of these has the potential to be a truly killer autoencoder deck and learning to play them differently. So familiarity with your decks will not only help you with playing that deck, it can help you with playing other decks that you have that you might not have thought about them in a certain light. So it's just an overall increase in your skill set mm-hmm. agreed we can't finish an episode of help from future self without the titular segment this one's called help, help from, future, from self. future self so i have one for this week and it happens to be kind of a a lesson that's that's not really like a a bad thing but it was something that worked out really well in my favor and it required faith so i was playing a game where i archived a restringuntis very early on like within the first two turns and I didn't play it for almost the entire game. And I kept wondering if I was not pulling it from my archives and making a huge mistake. And it kept happening. Like I kept mm-hmm. getting this nagging, like, Oh my goodness, did I miss the opportunity? Should I have played it here? Like, is, is this the moment that I need to play it? And it went on and on and on. And I just had patience and relax and didn't stress out about Well, I did stress out about it, but I didn't, <laughs> I didn't like, like waver from from knowing the right time. And it made me realize that Restringuntus actually can become extremely potent the longer the game goes on. Because the longer the game goes on and the more through the deck your opponent gets, there's a good chance that they could have a huge chunk of one house available. And if you can count the cards and realize that, you can actually make it so your opponent is going to be in trouble once you drop the restaurant gun to just because, one, you know what removal has been played by looking at their discard, so you you have that idea. And two, you see, wow, this one house is like, they still have at least half of it left, and they only have four cards left in their deck, which means they probably can't, can't play much. So if you can get that on board where you're going to take out anything they put down and you know the removal's gone, you can put someone in a very, like, sticky situation and um it was just having that faith to not get panicked because you think you're missing the moment and i think that restaurant guntis is the example here but it's not the case it's more this concept that sometimes you're archiving something for a big play and being patient and not worrying about the play being gone is a good thing to do man that is a great lesson been yet another wonderful episode of help from future self i love talking to you about keyforge blake it is one of the highlights of my week always and this is actually giving me a lot of stuff that i'm going to bring back to my keyforge games that mm-hmm. I play over the course of the next couple of days. But we do have to get out of here. You can, of course, find us on Twitter at HFFS Podcast. You can find me as Scuzzy Gruen on The Crucible, um, on Instagram and on Twitter under that name. Where can they find you and what have you got going on on your streams, Blake? Yeah, I got a stream uh, every Tuesday night. I've been working on, the, like I said, the deep dive concept where I take a deck that has some interest to me and I put in those 10 games and I actually make a note every game of things that I notice with the deck. Did I win or lose? What uh, set was I playing against? And I'm really enjoying this. And then after that, I do a follow-up video with to see if some of the early thoughts come true and what other discoveries happened along those 10 games. So I'm really enjoying that. And of course, you can find me on uh, TCO and Twitch now under uh, Boulevard Blake is what I'm going under for those games now. And then, of course, Instagram and Twitter under Boulevard Paper Fight, as well as YouTube. Terrific. All right, we got to get out of here. Love ya. Until next time, stay forward.